Hello and welcome to How to Launch an Industry, brought to you by Marku and Aurora, bridging the gaps between business, science, and consumers in cannabis and psychedelics. I am Jehan Marku, your lead moderator for the group discussion today, and as usual, I'm joined by Dr. Nigam Aurora. Welcome, everybody. Nice to have you back on the show. Other friends and members of the group this week is David Valancourt, Master of Science and our resident GMP expert. Welcome back. Hey, Jehan. Thanks for having me back, guys. And joining us for the first time, two team members of Silera. Silera brings you a new era in mindful medicine. We welcome the CEO and co-founder, Dr. Chris Witowski. Hello, and thanks for having me. Awesome. And we're also joined by the Chief Scientific Officer, Dr. Jackie Von Salm. Nice to have you both on the show. Yeah, thanks for having us. So we have a great show for you, listener. Uh, for our popular science section, we're going to discuss uh, 10 magic mushroom species you should know about. We're going to discuss also this new Cannabis Regulators Association, spend a little time on the history of the 2C designer drug classes, as well as talk about an article from The Economist, Weed Killer, and how Indian stoners are facing a moral crusade. And we'll jump into some science about the pharmacological effects of 2CB compounds, as well as uh, an analgesic effect of a psychedelic drug called Changa, a case report. And we're going to end with one of my favorite games. We're going to play Where is David Valancourt? Or Where is Valancourt? A 20-question style game to figure out what GMP product he was assessing and where. And with that, we'll be right back. And jumping into the news. Welcome back. Our first news item is from one of my favorite publications, Double Blind Mag at doubleblindmag.com. And this article is entitled Beyond Psilocybin Cubensis, 10 Magic Mushroom Species You Should Know About. I really enjoyed reading this article, uh, perhaps for me, being an Eagle Scout, uh, it was really cool to hear about the flying saucer, blue runners, blue angels, or the azies, the strongest psilocybin species that grows in the wild, was actually discovered by Boy Scouts camping in Oregon, uh, but wasn't officially recognized as a species till decades later. But, you know, we have two experts in this in the psychedelic space with us today. I guess my first question is, you know, let's go to you, Jackie. Do you agree with this list? Um, do, you, do you like the mushrooms? Are there, are there some that you'd want to see on there? Um, I know there's like 100, 180 different yeah. types <laughs> of mushrooms. What are your, what's your response to this list? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I do like the list. It also includes Tempensis, which I'm in Tampa, Florida. So that's always pretty great to see that one mentioned, uh, which is odd because I think they've actually not been able to really find it again around these parts much, which is strange that uh, I guess someone got lucky in 1977 to hunt that one down. Um, but no, I do like the list. I think obviously there are plenty of other mushroom species out there that uh, it produce a lot of interesting psychedelic compounds, especially psilocybin and psilocin. Um, I was surprised that when they mentioned originations, that they didn't really go into some of the, the other compounds there too. And um, I mean, I know the focus was, I guess, more on the psilocybin side, um, but it was just, I was still surprised, I guess, that they didn't talk about maybe some of those other compounds that are sort of up and 
coming on the the research train and people are starting to talk about. Okay. Well, if I can ask you, what would you say is like the rookie of the year mushroom compound outside of psilocybin? Just, just one off the top of your head. If you, you know, I don't, don't give away any trade secrets here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yeah, not from, not from us, but uh, there are some groups that are um, really trying to, to push the originasin compound. Um, I mean, it's, it should be interesting. We'll see. Uh, it's got between that one and then, um, they do mention Bay Assistant though in the, in the article, but, uh, I think originasin is the one that's been popping up quite a bit from companies looking at that to kind of see what it might be capable of. Um, we'll see if that, that quaternary amine gets them where they need to go. I, I like what you're saying. You know, I'm hearing that we, there, there was a, this article's good, but it had a bit of psilocybin tunnel vision to it. And there's, there's lots of other things plants can offer. And so I want to go to you, Chris. And, and, you know, when you're looking at this list, are you looking at each of these and saying, oh, yeah, let's commercialize all of these? Or are there some that give you pause? Are there some that you're more excited about? What, what is, what's your response to, you know, this list? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of those, those are what's found in nature. So a lot of times it's hard to recreate that if you're going for more of a, a commercial scale. Um, you know, and some of the compounds that were listed, obviously, you've got different uh, methylation patterns on the amine and, you know, the MAOI effects that some of those can have. Uh, if you have just a, a primary amine there, generally the, your body uh, destroys those compounds pretty quickly. Uh, and now I think uh, rather recently there was a publication that came out that showed some harmane uh, alkaloids that come from i don't recall actually the species of mushrooms but those certainly can you know help at least increase maybe the absorption of some of those compounds whether they be psilocybin or otherwise i think that's a great point that just because it occurs in nature and is maybe has a certain effect when you're foraging and out there doing some sort of ritual ceremony uh, it may not translate into a scale up. There, there might be some curveballs there, especially I think the absorption and, and the timing. And I think our article, the science article we're going to talk about later about why they combine different things with the DMT. Um, I think that's, again, kind of maybe similar to what you're talking about. Is this going to be broken down rapidly or is it going to be there long enough to get the, the effect or outcome you're looking for? G- great, great points. Yeah, and I think uh, we mentioned Baosystem, which is the quaternary amine. Um, you know, that theoretically should hold up to MAOs in the body, but whether or not that, you know, charged zwitterion at that point can cross the blood-brain barrier, I think there's a lot of uh, skepticism out there about whether it can. They've done that compound specifically in um, serotonin receptor assays, and it's quite potent as an agonist, but obviously the difference between in vitro and in vivo is, is pretty substantial now, now you're out here throwing big terms around twitter <laughs> ions and maos like just for the listener who might be driving in a car wondering what the heck we're talking about talk about the maos just a very simple terms we're going to address it later but you know you use the the acronym not me so uh just yeah. just in simple terms for, for the listener t- just it's touch the- on the mao Yeah, monoamine oxidase. And these are enzymes that pretty much everybody has in their body. And if you have an MAOI, it's an inhibitor of MAO enzymes. So, you know, typically those can be used in combination in order to increase absorption of certain drugs, Uh, especially these amine compounds are very sensitive to these enzymes. Okay, yeah, absolutely. And and that that makes perfect sense. So, Nigam, I want to give you a chance to comment on this um, article. So, did you see this article as like a checklist for life experiences where you're like, 
need to do this one, done this one, or is this more like um, just a good start for folks? And the other question, Nigam, I wanted to ask you, or maybe follow up to the group to think about, is strains an appropriate label for these different species or varieties of mushrooms? Is that an appropriate term? But Nigam, I first just want to get your response uh, to this article. Uh, totally. So I, I did like it. I, I thought it was a cool intro, especially, you know, part of what we're doing here is we're bringing sort of these like palatable uh, stories to listeners who are just getting into the space and learning about the depth and breadth of psychedelic mushrooms, psychedelics beyond that, the cannabis space. So I did think this like fits nicely into that mold. A couple highlights that I would like to share is one, it was cool how it listed the different potencies. So that is something for folks who are interested to have these different experiences. It's not, um, we can think about it like a lot of folks are familiar with cannabis. There's, you know, different, as you mentioned, the strain thing, there's different potencies, there's uh, different effects from the entourage of molecules within it. So the same thing's happening here with the mushrooms. So I thought they give a cool kind of high level summation of some of the different contents, be it psilocybin or psilocin levels or some of the other minor components in these different strains. The other thing that was cool was they listed some of these other resources, silopedia.com, silo, P-S-I-L-L-O-W.com, right? Which uh, I thought were cool and I'd clicked around a little bit so our listeners might enjoy those as well. Excellent. Um, So last question, I'm just going to throw it to the group if anyone is brave enough. Is strains an appropriate way to, to talk about mushroom varieties? I know there's a bit of a debate in the cannabis world, but I, you know, I, I'm, I'm just a junior mycologist here. Um, Jackie, Chris, thoughts on, on this terminology for how we talk about different types of mushrooms? I think Chris would be a good one for that. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, in cannabis, the term chemotype instead of strain is being used a little bit more often than not now. Um, I believe there's probably a bit more variety in in strains in the, the mushroom world since you now have these growing in pretty much all different parts of the world. So there is, you know, some variety on the strain type as of now. And you do have different chemotypes, whether it be your golden teachers or uh, I'm just going to call it PE, um, you know, all the different varieties of that one. So yeah, I think both are applicable terms at this point, but I do think there is more research that needs to be done to, to really understand kind of the similarities and differences. Oh, perfect. All right. So we're going to move on to our next article, which is uh, something a little different. It's more of a press release from the Cannabis Regulators Association announcing their formation. So state regulators have started the Cannabis Regulators Association, which will help navigate cannabis regulations at federal, state, and and local levels. And I think this is long overdue, but uh, to quote one of the members on the executive board, you know, Uh, Our intent in forming this organization is to have CANRA serve as a resource for policymakers, elected officials, researchers, and other stakeholders to engage with regulators from across the country and receive unbiased information and recommendations regarding the impact and implementation of cannabis policies. Now, David, uh, I want to go to you because... You know, you really boots on the ground with this stuff. You go to different states and you're, I feel like you've kind of been doing what their mission is here. Like you're trying to bring a standardized way of doing things, um, you know, to different products so that, you know, if a company produces a product in Nevada, it's meeting the same specifications in, in Massachusetts because you're following, you know, good manufacturing process and things like this. 
Um, so David, your reaction to this group, do you think it's going to make, you know, it easier for companies in the space as regulators start to maybe all pull from the same data source <laughs> to inform their regulations? Uh, your, your reaction to this announcement, please. Yeah, one, one should certainly hope it'll make things easier. And, um, you know, I would say I am... I am so excited for this to see this exist. Uh, it's a long time coming, in my opinion. Um, to your point, yeah, I've been working in many different venues and forums, whether it's through you know work on committees at the NCIA, working with folks like Attach, um, the American Trade Association for Cannabis and Hemp, and you know ASTM International, and you know the U.S. Pharmacopeia is involved too, right? Like they've had an expert working panel committee of scientists, you know, two hundred year old organization now has been involved in cannabis for actively for five years. Of course, that's before you know, they were involved up until 1942 when it used to be a monograph. Um, but but back to this, you know, the CANRA, right? The rah, 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 CANRA. 19 <laughs> states are involved, right? That That's huge. And um, we're bringing cannabis from 1775 into 2020. And, you know, it's gone are the days, should be the days where every state has its own currency. It's, you know, gauge width of railroad tracks, et cetera. How are we going to work between states and, you know, it's more than just track and trace, right? And it's about, you know, forget even GMPs for a second, which is critical for consumer health and safety and product consistency. But what about EPA? What about environmental discharge? What about OSHA and worker protection? What about interstate commerce and the fact that the Department of Transportation oversees that? And, you know, uh, a colleague of ours on our, at, our, at our company, you know, she, she worked in aerospace and, you know, built, you know, uh, spacecraft parts, right? And to ship that from, say, Boulder, Colorado to, you know, the Kennedy Space Center, um, you don't, you can't ship that in a standard DOT box. So how do you, how do you ship that literally across the country? Um, Canvas is going to have its own kind of challenges and concerns and opportunities. So to see, and this is not just another group, you know, this is by regulators for regulators, which is exactly, you know, every, every state has had its own fair share of war stories and will continue to. And, uh, you know, as Mississippi looks to regulate, right. Uh, South Dakota, Montana, um, why should they be going it alone and starting from scratch? You know, there's 30 plus states that yeah. have figured it out and made plenty of mistakes. So it's so exciting to see this, this come about. It is exciting. And, and it's so funny for me to see like, you know, New York and New Jersey, who both spell marijuana differently in their regulations. Um, it's nice to see them coming together. Uh, but David, I want to ask you, you know, as, as yeah. someone who has technical expertise that maybe, you know, your average bear that works for a state regulator doesn't have, do you see, I guess my concern is that if you don't have experts from the industry, people with practical information, where are the regulators getting their information uh, yeah, so what, what's kind of the pro-con of not allowing industry members and you have to be a representative, you know, from a regulatory agency? You know, I'll, I'll be careful with how I answer this. Um, but I, you know, I, I'll, I will say I have not spoken to any of those folks personally to date, um, directly at least. And, you know, there, there's a reason why I think they want to be very strategic and unbiased um, and not influenced by, you know, policy, special interest, money, because there, there's plenty of that out there, especially yeah. this day and age. So um, I, if you look into their website and read about their mission, you know, it becomes clear that they're not saying you're not allowed. Um, it's just more of a, an invite only, like, we'll, we'll reach out to you extra experts to get information, but ultimately we're going to take it and make our own decisions based on the body of information instead of saying, well, if you're going to pay us enough money, I guess we'll, 
will do what you think is best. <laughs> yeah, that's a great clarification. So I appreciate it. So I read the press release. I was like, oh, are they going to seek out experts or not? So it's good to right. know that they're going to keep those channels of communication open, but keep the, the organization, the association pure. And, you know, Nigam, I want to get your perspective as this, as a California resident, you know, what's up? They're not joining this 19th state delegation. Like, what? Yeah. What? Why? Why did you drop the ball in California? Like, why didn't you get them on board? <laughs> Let me um, just clarify Ain't that I take absolutely no responsibility for the uh, <laughs> lack of California being on this list. But actually, you know, as I'm saying that out loud, maybe they have a good reason. Maybe there's something happening behind the scenes we don't know. So, I did want to say that when Dave was. Uh, listing off some of these key states, it's like that's the first thing that jumped out to me. You know, working in the industry in California for several years, you know, seeing things happen and develop in California at a rate that we're not seeing elsewhere and we're not going to see elsewhere for a long time, seeing volume in California that, you know, rivals entire other countries and like the whole rest of the, you know, United States cannabis business. So, all of these things, I did think it was a little bit absolutely noticeable that California wasn't on the list, but I think as we're lightly speculating here, maybe there's a good reason for that. So I think time will tell. The other thing that I kind of noticed and and Dave touched on too, was this thing of unbiased information. And I'm not quite sure how they guarantee that, right? So not involving industry doesn't mean it's not biased, right? Um, Everyone has bias. So I I maybe would want to, if they're going to make that claim, I maybe would want to see more about how they control bias or how they are limiting it. So maybe that's something we'll share in the future. Good point. I think, I think there's been some really good commentary from, from David and Nigam on this subject. And I'm going to give, you know, Jackie or Chris uh, some thoughts uh, to explain, you know, maybe their feelings to this, like, would you want to see a psychedelics regulators association? Is it too early or is it like it's, it's overdue? Do, would you like to see something like this for the psych? Do you think it'd be helpful at this early stage that the psychedelics industry seems to be in? So I personally am a big believer in getting ahead of whatever you can kind of as early as you can. Um, especially so you know, in Florida, I'm not sure how many people know, obviously, since every state's different, but Florida was vertically integrated and you had to be able to do everything from seed all the way to sale at the dispensary. And um, I have been to the Capitol a few times to work with regulators here when I was in the cannabis industry. And there were a lot of gaps in their understanding of really basic testing concepts. And I thought, you know, that kind of blew my mind when we, you do have the FDA, we do have, you know, the USP, we have all these things that have been developed for a lot of drugs, they're starting to do it for botanical extracts there. Since um, I think in 2016, they came out with a really big kind of revamp of that whole thing. And it just doesn't really make sense for all of these different places to be attempting to do it blind of each other and what each individual is doing, especially when there are also countries that already regulate these things. I mean, Germany already regulates dietary supplements and nutraceuticals, This and I, they do it really well. So, I mean, I think that if, if we can learn as much as we can from each other, you're just going to save on time and, and efficiency, but also safety, because a lot of these things, 
unfortunately, we seem to be almost learning more and more safety and toxicity things every day from the various, you know, plethora of different natural medicines now that we could have avoided very much if we had really just done our homework and really researched it and understood kind of what was going on. So I think absolutely for the psychedelics world, the more we can get ahead of it and the more we can go to the experts and the people who have already been working with this for decades. I mean, these things have been around for, for a very long time. And even if it seems like someone might have an opinion that doesn't really appear substantial in the 21st century terms, I guarantee you it will still help our understanding, even if it's an indigenous population, you know, like just whatever that knowledge might be to help us move forward. I think it would definitely benefit us. Excellent. I, you know, I think it's a great idea for the psychedelics, you know, regulations as they move forward to have a collective consciousness. Uh, you know, so, so much of psychedelics focuses yeah. on the unconscious, you know, <laughs> let's all work together and we can get on the same page through the magic of technology. Uh, I think that's brilliant points. Chris, uh, do you agree with Jackie? Do you have, you know, some more insights to share with us? Yeah, I agree with Jackie and even uh, David with some of the points that he made on the cannabis side, having worked in six or seven different cannabis markets myself, it's very segmented and every state's got different regulations and it's it's literally a pain literally for anyone to follow these and have consistent rules. And I think, you know, long term it is trending towards a federal legalization, but in, you just can't say cannabis is now federally legal because every state's going to have different laws and there's no there's no kind of cohesive movement. But I think things like this will help push it in the right direction, at least start the conversation before, you know, the legalization happens. On the psychedelic front, um, you know, I, there's now Oregon is, is a state that just passed or decriminalized psychedelics in a couple of cities now have done it. You know, I'm a little more skeptical about uh, a widespread movement similar to cannabis in the psychedelics world, just because these are uh, psychoactive molecules, but in a whole different level. I mean, they'll, they'll question who you are, where you are. Uh, cannabis certainly is, it can be used um, certainly inpatient, outpatient, recreational, um, and it has been for a long time, but most of the, the clinical settings of psychedelics now are done inpatient and having supervision. And I think if left unregulated, I think it can be used in the wrong settings and, and you know, you can lead to a lot of bad outcomes. And right now the psychedelics movement has made strides that it hasn't in 50 some odd years. So, you know, all it takes is one or two bad headlines and I think you can really set it back. So I would be a little cautiously optimistic about how those uh, kind of things move forward. Ultimately, I do think they will. And, you know, personally, I'm supportive of it, but it needs to be done in the right way. Yeah, excellent points. Um, and, you know, speaking of, you know, bad headlines and moving forward, let's go on to our next article about a bit of a controversial drug class, the 2C designer drug class. And this article is from TheVerge.com, History of the 2C Designer Drug Class. Now, these are, uh, the 2C class are interesting, as I understand them, and, and maybe Chris or Jackie can, can calibrate this, but there, it's basically derivatives of mescaline but they have kind of both like mixed properties of uh, almost being like a stimulant and a psychedelic uh, at the same time and, and was 
the, the go-to replacement for MDMA. And, and this, this drug has had a bit of an up-down history, scheduled drug, uh, uh, overall certain classes or types of 2CB series molecules seem to be safe and well-tolerated and very mild. Uh, other times there's been uh, deaths associated with some of the more, I call fringe compounds. Um, and I guess I'd like to go, you know, to, to back to Chris real quick. When you look at these articles that sort of in the popular literature about the history of the, you know, these drugs, I mean, what, what are your kind of, th- kind of thoughts here? Do you think that, you know, one, did the author maybe do a good job in balancing the discussion here and it wasn't too raw, raw, like two CB compounds. Um, and is there a question that when listeners are approached with more and more of this sort of pop culture, you know, history of psychedelics that they should be asking themselves um, your, your thoughts on this article? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, you have to balance some of the facts with some of the anecdotal evidence that's out there. And, you know, there have been a couple of really, you know, tragic adverse events, but I think those are more likely due to side products or impure materials, which the article hints to. And, you know, anytime you're getting a recreational substance, there's always going to be, you know, David can attest on the GMP side, what actually is in there. And, you know, having read PCAL by Alexander Shulgin, who kind of was the pioneer of a lot of these compounds, the 2CB class, um, you know, he, he really talked highly of them. They're quite potent serotonin agonists, uh, more so than a lot of the other compounds that are in clinical trials, such as MDMA and psilocybin. Um, you know, with these compounds, 10 to 20 milligrams is enough to turn your world into a, a cartoon rendering, apparently. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of promise for these types of compounds. They haven't been nearly as clinically studied as some of the ones that I've mentioned, but, you know, now we're in a new age where I think, you know, these sorts of things can be looked at and less stigmatized from a, a therapeutic sense. Yeah, you know, really good points. And I kind of liked what you said about Shulgin and the, the anecdotal reports. But you want to ask David about, you know, has he experienced something like this in the cannabis space? And you go, you, David, I'm sure like when you're doing your GMP assessments, you get people showing you all sorts of weird fractions of cannabis oils. And has anyone ever like shulganized it for you? Been like, oh yeah, I took it up to 100 milligrams. It was great. Let's roll this out. And you're like, wait, wait, wait a minute. Like, what is this compound? Um, have you experienced that kind of similar? Like, oh yeah, I tried it personally, uh, and that's why I want to make it a product. And is that you know? Because because people are basing a lot off of you know Alexander Shulgin's. I mean, he was meticulous in his work and, and brilliant. Yeah. But, you know, even I'm, like, skeptical when I'm reading, like, oh, this one's called, you know, he was worried he, he just was permanently in a bliss state from this compound. I'm like, I don't know. That <laughs> sounds risky. Uh, you know, um, so I don't know if, I, if it's fortunate or unfortunate that I have not run into that yet. Um, I'm not sure which side of the coin. But, um, <laughs> you know, because to your point, right, uh, now the closest I've come, there's a, there's a good colleague in, uh, in uh, group up in up in British Columbia that I've worked with that um, the the founder and CSO's wife is a is a physician and they have a testing laboratory as well. It's actually a fully accredited one, you know, legal operator. And he actually uh, has some fun and does you know, wife draws his blood after he you know takes a little bit of you know edibles to see you know at what point am i actually getting my you know maximum threshold um so he's you know he's doing some of that foundational science um which 
which I think the industry needs in many ways, of course, in a, you know, controlled, you know, clinical study, of course, with, you know, placebos and what have you, you need, you know, an N number. We, we talk about that a lot here, right? Where, well, great, that study had 18 people, you know, how statistically significant is it? Um, and, you know, but the other thing I want to point out too, related to this article, you know, there was, there's one, one thing that kind of, kind of made me pause for a second. Um, you know, they quote, the main issue with the 2C family of drugs continues to be the void of information on their effects and dangers. And, you know, to Chris's point, you know, is it, is it the drug? Is it the impurity, right? You know, what's the level of residuals? Because, you know, there's no such thing as 100% pure, you know, there's always some sort of, there's, I like to say there's no zero, you know, it's just how many decimal points can you go out there until you find it? Um, but, you know, and then they mentioned something about like, well, yeah, it's going to be at least 200 grand for a toxicity study. Well, sure. That's a lot of money, but you know, it's a lot more is a lawsuit because somebody actually, you know, got harmed. And, uh, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, I don't fault the, the author of this, but we shouldn't even be questioning something like that. You know, you shouldn't be pioneering basic research or any sort of research that's going to go into humans and, and affect humans if you don't know the toxicity of it. You know, that, that's just a not, non-starter. And I think we need to be very cognizant of that. And the same goes back to the cannabis industry with, you know, pesticides, heavy metals, you know, the vitamin E acetate kind of shenanigans and, you know, what's in your vape cartridge? Is there, you know, metals leaching into there? We have to be very careful um, and consider the safety of fraud before we just sprint to market. So I hope that's at least something that's kind of taken away yeah. from this. A- absolutely. I think that's a valuable insight, David. And before we move on to the, the last article for our pop science culture, which, Negam, I want you to, not just because you have a background uh, with Indian culture, but I think it'd be a fun article. But I want to go to Jackie real quick, um, just to end this this section on the article. You know, you know the two C family of drugs is kind of seen as the go to replacement for MDMA. That's how it like got really popular with um, how you say electronic music goers. And you know, if you know MDMA is really kind of this this trajectory to have really like pronounced clinical effects. So does MDMA's clinical success, could that impact, you know, the future of 2C compounds? And, and maybe, you know, just from like a personalized effects, what I want to understand is maybe why, like, what is it about the effects of MDMA, just maybe from like kind of a, a you know, individual thing that translates so well to 2CB compounds? And again, feel free to keep it at 30,000 feet, um, <laughs> but use it as a prompt, as a departure point. <laughs> Yeah. Um, no, so I, I actually did like the article. Um, I think it was nice that they even emphasized a little bit about from, I believe it was Nichols actually who mentioned just how costly it can be to run some of these toxicity studies. And I think the one thing that uh, the article didn't get to, which I'll definitely get, uh, I think leads well to your question is just how many of these 2CB compounds exist now. <laughs> Um, that have been synthesized and or created in some way. And I mean, there's dozens and dozens of them. And um, I think it's important to remember that with a lot of drugs in the body, the changing one atom can completely change how your body acts with it. And when I say that, I mean, the difference between morphine and heroin is really only oxidation. <laughs> and so I think it's important to remember that, that they seem like minor changes and they th- seem like minor differences, but they can dramatically change um, how the body reacts with it. So I think with these compounds, they are different than MDMA, um, different structures uh, slightly, but like you mentioned, a little bit more similar to mescaline. And 
Um, I think that they'll have a lot of promise. I think it'll be similar to sort of the the two Bromo LSD stories that you hear with different LSD derivatives and some of the ergotamines and how um, those can actually really change potency depending on um, different substituents on those compounds. And I think it's just a matter of finding out how these different compounds are acting in the body. But I do think it's still important to take sort of a little bit of that Shulgin approach of how are people actually reacting to those differences. If you can prove that the toxicity, so you're avoiding the ones that do lead to death, obviously, or the ones that do lead to really adverse side of effects, weed those out initially. And then you should be left with a good handful that at least you can sort of monitor and assess the different outcomes and how patients react differently to them. Because I think it's going to really help our understanding of that personalized medicine or the, the more personalized effects side. It's going to be tough. I mean, there's a ton of people in the world now. I don't want to think about doing that for even a hundred people, let alone a billion people. But I think it's important and us moving forward and really trying to make medicine new and novel and exciting. Uh, that's going to be the forefront of it is looking at all these different compounds, what kinds of reactions people have. And um, again, if there's not extreme toxicity there, it should definitely be fair game to expand on what it's doing. Absolutely. And, and, you know, part of what I'm hearing here is that, you know, you should not just illegalize novel psychedelic products. Uh, these, you know, the process by which they are discovered and used kind of already weeds out the less dangerous stuff because otherwise the people who are, let's just say, have their finger on the mycelium are, <laughs> you know, they've done their own sort of screening process. And as we sort of limit access to A, B, C, and D, you know, those other ones, maybe they're not so great, similar to what we saw with the psychedelic cannabinoids. And spe speaking of reactions and maybe some extreme responses, you know, I want to go to our article from The Economist, uh, but it appears that uh, Indian stoners face a moral panic. Now, as you know, India and cannabis and hemp have been like, you know, closely aligned for a long time. One of our first big reports ever, the, 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 it was at the Indian Commission on Hemp, the Indian Hemp Drugs Commission report. That was an exhaustive report, which concluded that the moderate use of hemp drugs is practically attended by no evil results at all. And on the evil disorder scale, let me tell you, it's a very tough form to administer. But um, you know, more seriously, you know, India has gone kind of to war with the plant this year in terms of their narcotic bureau increasing um, and things like this. So, so Nigam, what the heck is going on in India with cannabis and hemp right now? I mean, it's in the Atharva Veda. It's Shiva's favorite plant. But hey, I'm just a Westerner looking in on the outside wondering, like, you have this the Holy Holy Festival, you know, you have licensed bong sales people at certain times of the year. It's such a big part of the culture there. What's going on? Yeah, so I can speak to this a little bit. It's, uh, I think there's two big things going on. And for, for the listener, for clarity, I'm half Indian. So that's why John's like bringing this up if, if you guys don't know me yet. So anyways, um, I think there's two separate things happening. One is what we've seen similarly in other countries, we've seen this in China too in, in recent years where people in the, um, you know, media space or, you know, actors or other famous people are engaging and using some of these 
uh, substances similar to the like we would see in, you know, in the U.S. in the L.A., you know, music or movie scene or whatever, that drug use is a thing. Now, in Asia, in a lot of places, they have these really harsh laws. So even cannabis use is seen as very fringe and, and very uh, punishable, right? Now, in some cases, people who have prominence are able to get away with it. But we've seen, as I was mentioning about China, you know, you can see in the news over the last several years, like crackdowns on these kind of things and even famous people being uh, imprisoned or, or going through these, these major court cases and all this. So that's kind of the first thing, like that's also happening in India now. And it kind of makes sense, right? If the government wants to get this policy out there, they target prominent people, they try to make an example of them. So I almost see that as kind of a copy paste. The other thing, and the more important thing, I think to me and to, you know, the average person out here is that, as Jehan was mentioning, and I've spoken to, you know, some of my family members who grew up in India and spent, you know, just so much time there and are deep in the culture that even with this kind of like, you know, policy that's been around since the U.S. spread their war on drugs around the world in 1971, before that, after that, the whole time, cannabis was on sale in your average marketplace in India. Now, it may have been low potency. It may have been kind of an under-the-radar thing that was kind of happening. People knew it was happening, but nobody made a big deal out of it. And like I said, that, that I think is ongoing, and I don't think that's going to change. So big takeaway for me is, or what big thing I'm curious about is what happens next? How does India's, you know, legal framework or outlook on cannabis, uh, be it THC containing, be it hemp, uh, how does it go forward? So I'm actually following developments there closely. I think that is um, a really good question. And, and maybe it's going to come at the level of the UN, but maybe there's also going to be a sort of a responsible media um, thing that has to happen where how it's perceived in the media. And, and you know, David, you know, I'm sure when you're out there talking to companies, you see all sorts of crazy marketing things. You see weird things in movies. Um, you know, was there something in this where you were like, this really parallels some experience, some things in cannabis? Yeah, well, you know, and it's funny. I was I was fortunate to have gone to India, not not for Where's Valancourt and cannabis, but I was back there in January for a really good friend's wedding in the Himalayan foothills, and um, you know, got to got to experience a little bit of that that industry and the history. I'll leave it at that. Um, but you know, at the timing of the reefer madness world, and of course the the famed Bollywood uh, you know industry there, it's just crazy when you look at that article. You know, they reference which I didn't know about. You know, the Hindi film that. Uh, in ninety and seventy one, right? That gave Indian stoners their theme song, you know, take another hit. And you know, so here we are, kind of following, uh, following in the footsteps of you know consensus Western world. And of course, let's not forget, you know, India's roots, which I'm sure Nigam can speak to more than any of us combined can. But uh, in my fun facts that I learned, you know, British it was British colony, and uh, you know, there's a lot of Western influence there, and for better and for worse. So, you know, I'm excited to see how things evolve um you know there as well because when you go there yes cannabis is just it's it's a weed it's it's everywhere you know nobody really um despite the the kind of stigma and, and criminal uh, repercussions um and you know, the, while it's a huge country, there's a lot of um, rural areas where it's just 
everywhere. Nobody even questions it. So, yeah, I, I would agree with it. That's probably where I had the cognitive dissonance, uh, the, <laughs> the logical paradox was it seems to be everywhere in India and in every form of media, scripture. Uh, but we do have to go to rapid fire science, but I want to give, I guess I'm going to say Jackie a chance to respond you know, to this article uh, about cannabis in India. And, you know, I know that you're very familiar with um, both cannabis and psychedelics, but was there something that jumped out at you in this article or did it make you think a thought you never thought before? Um, <laughs> um, well, I guess the thought I'd never thought before was I, I wasn't really following cannabis in India until I read this article, which was a good day. You know, I honestly, I had a similar assumption, I guess, to yourself that it was uh, a bit more accepted. I was interested in the fact that they were really emphasizing the popularity of it amongst celebrities and how that's influencing the younger generation and population. And um, I don't know, I got a little bit of a sense of that, that that just doesn't seem related to me to what like is really maybe the issue with cannabis and what that's presenting to the, the community. I don't, I'm not sure. I was just, I thought it was funny that they were really harping on the fact that oh, all these celebrities are starting to sort of <laughs> do this and cause all these problems. And um, I don't, I obviously don't think that that's the heart of the issue in my personal opinion, but it's just interesting that that's what suddenly sort of sparked some of that awareness. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. You know, I don't care what uh, Amir Khan, like the number one actor, greatest actor in India does in his spare time. <laughs> it's probably not going to influence me, but then again, I'm mm -hmm. not uh, on the ground there. Uh, so thank you all for helping me understand all these interesting news articles and, and the popular literature that have been piling up in cannabis and psychedelics. We're going to take a short break and come back with our rapid fire science. I'm David Valancourt, founder and CEO of the GMP Collective. We educate and provide best practice standardization across the emerging cannabis and life science industries. By working in a collaborative manner, our clients realize unrivaled product quality and the ability to sustainably grow their business through compliance and operational efficiencies. Find us online at gmpcollective.com or shoot us an email at info at gmpcollective.com. Enjoy the show. All right, welcome back. It's time for Rapid Fire Science, where we go around discussing and commenting on articles on psychedelics, cannabinoid, and other drugs. Our first article up is called entitled uh, Acute Pharmacological Effects of 2CB in Humans, an observational study published in Frontiers in Pharmacology. Uh, I thought this was a pretty cool article. Uh, I learned a lot about the mechanisms of 2CB um, just in general. I thought they did this really great thing. And this phrase they have in the study that they repeat over and over is oral 2CB at recreational doses induces a constellation of psychedelic slash psychostimulant-like effects similar to those associated with serotonin-acting drugs. Um, you know, 
Nigam, I want to go to you first because you're always the one that says, hold up, how many people were in the study? What were they dosing them with? So I want to give you the first crack um, to, to just share a little bit of insights in the studies. And just from a 30,000 foot view, what did you walk away with here? Yeah, absolutely. I can share some of those key facets with the listeners. So my kind of constant pet peeve with these studies, pet peeve might be the wrong word, but I feel the need to say it out loud so people can understand. Like the results are informed by where you start, right? So where we're starting here is 16 humans, one, six humans that have all done drugs before. And actually reading into this, they actually outlined this. And um, I was kind of surprised. We don't usually see this in the study. They're claiming that every single one of these 16 people had experience with MDMA, amphetamines, hallucinogens, cocaine, and cannabis. And additionally, 12 were current tobacco smokers. So that's, that's, that's a pretty experienced group i would say so, <laughs> yeah. so some very honest survey takers i would yeah. say and the, and the other thing that we we've hit on before is that the recruitment right so for example we had studies before where they're recruiting these people on like the arrowhead website right and stuff like this so these folks were recruited uh by word of mouth through the association for the study of states of consciousness i believe that's a group in spain so you know, you have people in the group saying, hey, call your friends and see if they want to participate, which isn't quite the same as kind of going to the population and like trying to select a kind of controlled group. So um, th those are some of the baseline things. I, I can share some other details later, but uh, let's see what other folks have to say in the group. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so one of the things that I found interesting were these tables where they looked at visual analog scales and there were some significant differences like from baseline, the intensity, the high, good effects, but things like bad effects, um, you know, not statistically different from baseline. Uh, seeing lights or spots. Yeah, some people kind of reported that no one saw animals or insects or aliens visiting them from foreign cities or things like that, or there weren't, there weren't um, audio hallucinations, not a lot of drowsiness, dizziness, confusion, which that in itself confuses me uh, about these products. So I'm going to go to, you know, to the chief science officer of Silera. <laughs> when you see this sort of small study with visual analogs scale and this rating system, do you think that these promising effects here would be, would you, that would pan out in a larger pool or are you skeptical about that? Um. Chris would probably say that I'm generally skeptical of everything. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Welcome to the space. show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, yeah, except especially in a situation like this one. Um, I, I also always wonder, and um, I'm sorry if this is slightly different than your question, but I also wonder when they do this, when you mentioned that they were recruiting from individuals that are already obviously active in the arena, they already are interested in some way, they already want to see this succeed. I really wonder how much of an emphasis that that has on you mentally when it comes to something like either the placebo or the nocebo effects and other things that can happen. Um, unfortunately, yeah, with only 16 people, I don't really think that you can say a whole lot about what came out of that in a non-controlled setting, which um, this would be. But I do think that the fact that these are users of other substances and they have already done those things, I think 
could also kind of put you the other direction where since they've already tried different things many times, potentially, um, that if they're still seeing an outcome, then there probably is in fact some kind of outcome only because of the amount of substance use they've done on in other fronts. Um, so so I, I'm a bit of a hypocrite in that situation where I'm saying like in one case, they want to see it succeed. So maybe they have an effect, but in the other case, they may have already used enough things that if they're seeing an effect, it might actually be doing something. And it's unfortunately, you can't really know the answer to that. I see what you're saying, but there is a bias even in this is having an effect. Like they're, they're discriminatory. Correct. Just like when you train, like there's some rats and monkeys, you know, I've worked in a lab where they are really good at drug discrimination. And like, is this having a mimetic, like it's mimicking other drugs. Um, but I guess, you know, so what I just want to understand, like if someone's been, you know, is used to candy flipping and taking MX rockets, like they <laughs> might not register adverse events cause they've been there and they've sure. had, uh, you know, some questionable nights uh, where, you know, maybe it wasn't so good. They're like trying to drink, you know, some warm milk and have toast to calm down and go to bed. And they're like, this is nothing, <laughs> kiddo. Um, but, you know, Chris, I, I, you know, Jackie mentioned you could bring some insights to the table on this study. I mean, you know, just objectively, when I look at these tables, it looks like a really promising drug, but I am kind of scratching my head because if the recruitment criteria for being in the study is using a couple different scheduled drugs throughout your life, uh, it's going to be hard to recruit <laughs> people for this, this trial. Yeah. And another thing I don't think was mentioned, uh, the participants actually chose their dosage. So, you know, that's another big point too. They found something that they were comfortable with, which likely led to even fewer adverse events in the course of the study. You know, I kind of saw this as uh, sort of, you know, maybe a preclinical or early clinical development just to get some general safety and tolerability. And, you know, certainly they picked from a group of people that have experience, which I think will probably give them better results. I think if you take a, a psychedelic naive person and give them 30 milligrams of this 2CB, I think they get a much different response. Um, but, you know, you got to start somewhere with these types of studies. And this is an outcome. I don't think it's anything different than maybe what we've seen and read anecdotally. But again, you've got to start somewhere. And, you know, reading some of the, the work done by Alexander Shulgin, you know, he mentions these compounds could have uh, pretty profound effects for uh, cognitive disorders, actually, as well as aphrodisiacs, which obviously opens up a whole different can of worms. If I could just add uh, one thing, too, is it was mentioned in there that they still see the increased um, blood pressure and heart rates and a lot of the things that tend to be associated with molecules similar to 2CB and MDMA. And I know that's one thing that um, we're always really looking at as, as different groups try to progress these molecules is their selection of patients and selections of people that might be able to handle that better than others. Um, I can attest to the fact that if I take, you know, mucin XD, I get an elevated heart rate. So I'm pretty sensitive to those things. And I think that there will be a lot of people that are sensitive. Yeah, absolutely. I think that you know, when they say things like in healthy experience users in a non-medical setting, this appears relatively safe that, uh, you know, hold on there, grasshopper. Don't just make a big leap to the next, you know, rung on the plant. You might want to slow down a bit. Um, you know, Nigam, I want to give you a chance maybe 
to add one more thing to this article. And, and David, uh, you know, you can nod if you want to follow up on Nigam's comment. But uh, Nigam, I know you had maybe one more two things you wanted to add before we go to the next article. One thing that I thought was cool that they called out was that, and this is actually just in the intro section, they were just like kind of sharing current state of knowledge about uh, 2CB class of drugs. And they had done a survey of, it was like 22,000, or excuse me, 2,200 or 2,300 uh, drug users. And I thought it was really interesting that they showed that 46% of those people had tried what they called an NPS or a new psychoactive substance during that time, kind of showing that this like folks who are willing to uh, use drugs or that's part of their thing, part of their culture, part of their, their life that they were kind of amenable about almost half these people were amenable to trying a new psychoactive substance. And then specifically 18% of these people had tried a two CB drug. So, I'm saying all that out loud because in this current, uh, you know, clinical medical uh, renaissance of psychedelics that we're experiencing, you see some that are that are being approached very actively, and then you see some that folks like Shulgin and and other, you know, researchers who helped start this field before were highly interested in, and they're not being addressed so much in the research space. But my point is that the people who have kind of, you know, kept the interest in this alive over time, 18% of them have tried 2CP and are interested in it. So I just kind of thought that was worth tossing out there. And, and it'll be interesting to see how it either becomes part of this uh, medical renaissance or not. I think that's a great point. And maybe, you know, a mechanism for recruiting people. Would you like to try novel psychoactive substances? Would you like to get paid for it? Sign up today for our clinical study. Uh, so, David, uh, you know, you know, Valencourt, I got to ask you, uh, where are you with this study? Um, sh- share us, uh, some of your thoughts before we move on to the next article. Yeah, you know, thanks, guys. So, you know, the well, one thing I want to add to, you know, kind of Nigam's point there is, you know, and thinking about for folks, you know, what's the intent of this study? And, you know, you mentioned like the folks, 23% of the folks had start, tried like a new psychedelic and this... For, 46, uh, excuse me, 46, 46 even yeah. Even better, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in some ways. So, you know, it gives what classically would be, oh, reefer madness, be careful, right? Or, you know, this is dangerous. Or, you know, I knew a guy that, that tried this and that happened to him. Like, it's the first attempt at you know, giving some quantifiable scientifically, you know, based data behind, you know, people didn't die, you know, this is what their experiences were. So, you know, let's give credit where credit is due and recognize that that's, that's the intent of the study. Of course, back to Jackie's point, like from, uh, you know, advancing science, does it really, you know, make us feel safe and say, all right, we're going to go and, you know, use these new classes of drugs and now everything's good. We've got everything figured out. That's like scientifically, you know, statistically significant. Heck no, but um, it's a great start. And so it's great to see it show up in the peer literature. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, Thank you, David. Thank you, everyone. So we're going to go to our final science article uh, for this round. This article is entitled Long-Lasting Analgesic Effect of the Psychedelic Drug Changa, a Case Report, published in the Journal of Psychedelic Studies. Now, this is a very interesting case report. One, I love it because the, the male, the adult male has the same initials as me. 
So, um, but this was like, sounds like a nightmare scenario. You know, imagine, you know, you're working, this guy was, you know, was working at a hospital's emergency services, just noticing a lot of muscle pain, a lot of fatigue, fibromyalgia. And the thing that really resonated with me was, you know, he, he said like, it even became, took a lot of effort from just to caress his partner because of the muscular pain in the arms. And after intercourse, he needed a week to recover. You know, orgasm was painful. And, and you know, you know, inability to lift weights, decrease attentiveness. Now, you know, I mean, if you need a, a week to recover from, from sex, you're either doing something really wrong or really right. Um, that's just my personal view. But this is still kind of frightening thing. You know, you're taking all these drugs for a while. And then you go to an underground healer who rolls you a joint with some ground up seeds and, and a DMT extract in it. And your, your baseline pain levels go away for two weeks. Uh, you know, Jackie, you know, what's going on here? Do you think, I mean, I, I think imagine, you know, there, there's obviously hallucinogens, psychedelic compounds can change how we approach pain and certain things. Um, but this just seems like a very remarkable case. But, but share us your thoughts. Yeah. Um, I mean, they do go into what you just mentioned, though, that there are a lot of other things that some psychoactive compounds can sort of take the pain away, not necessarily because the actual pain is going away as much as you're now sort of distracted by some of the other effects. Um, I was actually really impressed at how much they emphasized that, like that those other effects of psychedelics can often lead to a decrease in pain uh, perception, I'll say, you know, or the, the fact that you have it. Um, I do think that's a factor, especially with something as powerful as uh, DMT, which is one of the major, you know, active portions of it. And I also think that um, the analgesic effects are still so unknown. I mean, we struggle with this even with cannabis. Uh, Chris and I are on NIH grants with some professors actually we've been trying for years to sort of understand some of the compounds there and how they're actually working because they don't seem to be following the typical mechanism of what you'd expect, um, especially with, and they also talk about this in the article as well as the inflammation aspect. You know, as soon as you're starting to decrease inflammation or affect that side of more of the immune system or inflammatory response, that can often have a profound effect on your um, perception of pain. So I think it's, I mean, I think it's great that that was, uh, you know, what he got out of it. I think it's, we really have to work on trying to, you know, see what it is that, that is leading to that for a lot of patients. And maybe it's a change in how you think about things. Maybe there's just some receptors that are just, you know, self-activating that are causing mixed signals to shoot around. You know, the body's weird. You know, one of the things I always like to talk about is when you get a mosquito bite, you know, in New York, I mean, the vicious buggers out here, you rub around the mosquito bite because it'll turn off or dampen that sensory going up to your brain. Um, but I think this is, you know, <laughs> it's, this is much more than that. Um, and so, you know, Chris, I'd love to hear some of your thoughts and insights uh, into this article. Yeah, it was very interesting. Um, you know, the way some of these compounds work, DMT, psilocybin, uh, they all target the serotonin system. And generally what's um, known about the way they work is it affects the default mode network. So when you're not working on a task or communicating like this, you typically have introspective thoughts about yourself, your life. If you're in pain, generally you just keep 
you know, ruminating over, oh, I'm in pain, this is terrible. And potentially, I mean, this is definitely a hypothesis here, but, you know, these compounds can disrupt that thought of I'm in pain, I need to, you know, break that uh, cycle. And that's generally how these compounds work. So obviously it helped him for up to two weeks, I believe, after a single dose, which there is a lasting effect uh, for some of the clinical trials now for psilocybin. They're showing efficacy six months to a year after uh, one or two doses. So, you know, you know, certainly very interesting results. And, you know, perhaps it is a, a neuroinflammation kind of thing that Jackie pointed to as well. I'm not too versed in fibromyalgia, which I believe he suffered from. But uh, yeah, a very interesting case study. Yeah. And what was very surprising for me was the combination. It wasn't just, um, you know, DMT extracted. It was also these ground up seeds from the, the harmless species, which in and of themselves have some very interesting, potent anti-inflammatory and pain um, I guess coming from these these beta carbolines that interact with you know pain modulating receptors like GABA. I mean, similar to you know THC effects affects the release of GABA. Um, but Nigam, you, you've been quiet and deep in thoughtful contemplation. Share some of your thoughts on, on this article. Yeah, I um, wanted to call out Jehan what you just mentioned too. That it wasn't just the uh, DMT. There's other components here, so I'm really interested in how those may be interacting. And I think the two key parts I'm saying is what I just said, and then plugging in with what Chris was highlighting about breaking the mental cycle of pain. Pain is such a complex thing. So, you know, just supporting what everyone else said. Really, really interesting, and just learning more about the, um, if we can say, the entourage effect of this drug, of this moment, as well as, um, you know, breaking that mental cycle, I, I think are both excellent things to, to look more into in the future. Excellent. Um, yeah. you- I, we mentioned, obviously, the um, combination of some of the different compounds that are in there, um, and it is similar somewhat to the ayahuasca story of sort of those harming and harmaline uh, derivatives, the beta carbolines, sorry, and they um, and how they interact with DMT. I know that with ayahuasca, it's often the tea, so you're actually ingesting it orally, and that has a very different mechanism, hence the few hours of duration. But I noticed in this article, they mentioned that, so this was the only reason I sort of emphasized the DMT more, was they said it was still only about a 15 to 30 minute um, effect, I believe, or something around there. And that it is in fact inhaled. So this is a combustion smoking kind of level. And I guess I don't know much about how the body absorbs those beta carbolines from an inhalation mechanism as much as I do from ayahuasca, which is more orally ingested. And I, I wonder if that's one of the reasons the effect might have been shorter. Um, but that was just one of the questions that was kind of raised for me with this one when I was reading through it. Yeah. Yeah, they kind of, I like the way they, they phrased smoking a cigarette as freebasing DMT. I thought that was <laughs> colorful language from a colorful case report. Uh, but but yeah. maybe, you know, the carbolines weren't having an effect on the metabolism of DMT, but perhaps just uh, maybe the airway inflammation. And I guess the, the final question I have here, and this is, this is how I can tell I'm, you know, I'm getting more maybe conservative in my my old age, but 
smoking things um, for medical benefits. Uh, you know, it's it's very difficult to explain that at a CME course for doctors when you're when, you know uh, smoking things. And at this stage, you know, I, I don't know that I'd be down to maybe it's just because I live in New York to go to someone's basement underground treatment center and they kind of like spit on a zigzag and like, here you go. You're good for two weeks. I, I would take a moment of pause, even if it was covered by my insurance. Um, but is the future of psychedelics inhalation products? Let's put smoking aside. But, you know, obviously teas Tea is the original herbal supplement. That's a very tried and true method for delivery, um, as well as uh, you know pills and things like that. But what are your thoughts on the future of inhaled psychedelics? I mean, we have a lot of inhaled products in the clinic. You go for surgery, everything's inhaled. Uh, so this is not something foreign. We have a lot of inhaled medicines in the United States improved on the market, but you know I, I think it's a it's an overall trend right we're seeing it in cannabis too you know we're seeing things come out like dry powdered inhalers for cannabis um i've heard talk of nebulizers for cannabis and, and um so i think it's only a matter of time till it comes to psychedelics and and also one thing too with cannabis that people love like you think about health and in covid times and all this we see an increase in people buying and using edibles or using alternative methods and, but one reason that people who smoke cannabis like it is because it's easy to control and it works fast, right? So it, I could see that very easily with like advancements in a formulation or in the technology uh, going into the psychedelic space as well. Because imagine instead of having to uh, eat psilocybin or eat a mushroom or to take some of these other drugs orally and you wait and the dose is hard to understand. Um, for when it's not dialed in in the clinical setting or even sometimes when it is, it's nice to be able to have those small inhalation doses where you can like get to the, the correct threshold at the correct time. So I, I see it, it trending that way. It'll be very interesting to see how it evolves. Yeah, and I think the big distinction between inhalation products is on the pharmaceutical side, you can't vaporize it or use heat. You know, if you're going to anesthesia, they're not like heating up a dab rig to give it to you, uh, you know. And I actually worked on a, a cannabis nebulizer before, and that was a challenging project, certainly. Um, but again, it has a very quick onset. It's easier to control. Um, you don't have to worry about the, the vaporized temperatures. And, you know, there has been quite a bit of backlash from the FDA on e-cigarettes and things like that, because, you know, once you start heating things up, a lot of different things can happen. A lot of byproducts, uh, you know, some of the components of the device can also change uh, the delivery as well. So it does have to be controlled, whether it be dry powder, MDIs, uh, immunodose inhalers and nebulizers. And DMT is one of those compounds where you need to have either a direct into the bloodstream, uh, such as an inhalation method, because generally, you know, with uh, an ayahuasca, you need the MAOIs there in order to have the therapeutic effect. And, you know, when you look at it from a, you know, an FDA pathway, trying to get one drug approved plus an inhibitor of enzymes that take care of this drug, it just opens up a lot of variability and you know, your, your clinical trials are going to be all over the place because some people have elevated enzymes and some people don't. And, um, I do think it is, you know, valuable, certainly, um, you know, like, uh, Nigam said is you got to have an, a way, you know, for pain, especially it's not one of those things where you want to take a capsule and wait 30 minutes to an hour to have it. 
having that quick onset really does make a big difference. Yeah. And I would say that, I mean, there is, there are compounds that are um, really not all that dissimilar to MDMA already on the market that are nebulized like albuterol and other things for airways and breathing and, and that sort of aspect. And I think that um, these things have, they do exist and we use them medically and they're tried and tested for decades. Anyone with asthma knows that. And I think that um, it will just take time and perfecting those formulations to, to make sure it's consistent for patients, but absolutely possible. I mean, I always like to sort of throw out the, we're dealing with compounds that are from the, you know, 20th century, but our technology is the 21st. So we, we should do something with it. <laughs> <laughs> Combine the best uh, of both worlds uh, for the benefit of all people. Uh, you know, this has been just a fantastic discussion and I'm, you know, we could probably spend another hour just, just breaking down these articles even further. And, you know, we haven't even talked about some of the references in these papers either, but maybe we should hang on to that for the sequel when we have you guys back. Cause you know, we still got to play the game. We got to figure out where's Valencourt, where, where's he doing his GMP assessment and what type of product. Uh, so we're going to take a short break and we're going to come back with today's game. At Marku and Aurora, we understand that finding the right source for cannabis education can be a real challenge. But imagine this. You name the university-level graduate school course you want to take, and we'll design and teach it to you, specifically suited for your needs. Fill out the contact form at marku-aurora.com, that's M-A-R-C-U-A-R-O-R-A.com, to tell us what you would like to learn about. All right, welcome back to today's game. Today, our group will be playing for the grand prize of helping to expand scientific thought. And here to walk us through the, our, one of our favorite games called Where's Valencourt? David Valencourt, tell us the rules of the game and get us started. Awesome. Thanks, Jehan. It's a pleasure to be able to advance scientific knowledge um, through 20 questions. No, no big deal, guys. Um, so essentially, um, we're going to break it down to what location at a state level, I will say, because of COVID, I have not left the country since um, early, early spring, unfortunately. Um, what type of facility, you know, is it a cultivation? Is it, you know, vertical, you know, processor, et cetera? Um, and what type of product? <clears throat> so, um, okay. So, yeah, feel free to uh, jump so in and ask your questions. So, we'll ask you some yes or no questions until, yes. and no, no guessing until like the fifth or sixth question, usually, right? Okay. Uh, I am going to tee it off, I think, if you're ready to go. Yeah. Ready. Hold on. Let me get to my really difficult questions page of my notebook. Um, Real question is, are you ready? All right. Is, uh, David. Uh, <laughs> was this a vertically integrated facility? It's not vertically integrated. Okay, Dave, I got a question. Was it east of the Mississippi River? It was not. David, was it a cultivation facility? It's 
not cultivation? Was it an extraction facility? Yes, it is an extraction facility. Curiouser and curiouser. Dave, was Um, it in Oregon? It is not in Oregon either, but it is, and it is not east of the Mississippi. Okay. um, Was it an inhalable product? No. Was it for... So you said you were in an extraction facility. Was this going into edibles products? Yes. Okay, guys. So we're, we're narrowing in. So we know it was going into edibles products. Somewhere we, between Oregon and the Mississippi River. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, okay. All right. All right. Would you consider it a, a southwestern United States? Yes, I would consider it the southwestern United States. Four um, Corners being maybe a good way to define the southwest. So, oh, damn. Free, free hints. Yeah. So, uh, David, uh, I think we're on question nine here. I'm going to ask, yep. you know, was, was the primary route of... And the reason I'm asking this is I'm trying to figure out the route of administration. So is it primarily activated by swallowing it? So this is a, how do I answer this? I'm going to just give you an answer. I'll give you a little hint because it's a little more complicated than that. These folks uh, did not produce final products per se. Mm. So the answer could be potentially yes. Oh, okay. I think what he's saying is that they were making like crude or they were making distillate. I think that's what he's saying. He's kind right, of he like, just nodded. He just nodded. <laughs> Write that down. Is that a question? Because if so, you can get that answer. Well, uh, okay, so I think um, I think the wait, let me ask a direct question. Dave, is the product itself crude or distillate oil? That is um, some of the main products that this group produces, yes. But but I guess to clarify for the game, are we trying to get to like am I trying to guess like gummies? Oh. Or oh. or are we because you said they're not necessarily taking it to a final product. So is the product in this yeah. case, in fact, the oil? Yeah, so that would, there you go. So the, the final product that they okay. make is broader, is an oil. Let's okay, just call it that. So, so we know uh, we know what weapon was used in this version of Clue. So I don't know if I can ask two questions in a row, but I'm just going to do it. Dave, was this uh, THC containing? A great question. I was hoping somebody would ask that. No, from a um, Schedule 1 perspective. Cool. So I think uh, I'm just going to say it out to the group. I think what we're looking at is a full-spectrum CBD oil as the product. Mm. Mm-hmm. Are we, Dave's nodding really hard. I think that's okay. true. <laughs> so we've got that. Now, we just need to know where one. would that make the most sense to produce? In Colorado. Ding, ding, ding. Yes, sir. Oh, did I think... Wait. Okay, so I'm going to lodge the final thing. So I think it's David Valancourt is in Colorado at a extraction facility working on a full-spectrum CBD oil. Ding, ding, ding. Hey! We found so if I can add, thank you for uh, you know helping to advance science. Um, it was indeed a Colorado extraction facility 
producing full spectrum CBD oil. And while I think why I think that's important for folks to realize and think about as you know the audience listening is that you know the, we're getting more evolved and you know this this particular group is really good at what they do, right? They take harvested dried milled biomass that is you know at a certain threshold from a certain strain and they only take it through to bulk you know bulk um bulk full spectrum CBD oil with a percentage of THC that is less than 0.3. And that's what they're really good at. They don't try to do anything beyond that post-processing. If folks want to put it into final packaging for, you know, edibles or what have you, you know, this is kind of the maturity of the industry that we're starting to see here. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you, David. That was awesome. It was even more fun than the first time we played this game. <laughs> that's our show thanks for clicking tapping swiping or however you're hearing this we appreciate it. and thank you to our trusty audio engineer this show is edited and mixed by joe leonardo we love you 